Welcome back to the Collectability Podcast. Today, I have a guest that I've dreamed to have with us. And uh, today, I welcome Peter Fries, director of the Patek Philippe Museum in Geneva. And he has been very busy in recent years building the Patek Philippe Museum's collection and raising awareness of what is Patek Philippe globally. It is regarded as one of the greatest horological museums ever assembled. And uh, today in this interview, we were going to dig deep and ask all of the questions we're curious about the Patek Philippe Museum and the man himself, Dr. Peter Fries. I'm especially interested in asking a line of questions of what it's like to be the curator of the Patek Philippe Museum. And uh, especially as the museum continues to evolve as a, a center of horological learning uh, in, in the world today. This interview is going to be divided in two parts. Uh, the first is, is about you. And uh, I'm very interested to hear and excited to hear of a tour that you'll be offering to our listeners of the Patek Philippe Museum, essentially a virtual visit of the museum with Peter Fries. Uh, the second part will be a further exploration of all things horological and a deep dive into the secrets of the Patek Philippe Museum. But before we begin, here is Peter's official biography. Dr. Peter Fries, curator and director of the Patek Philippe Museum in Geneva, comes from a family of watchmakers in Munich. So it was only natural for him to become a watchmaker and restorer of historical timepieces himself. His path from the workbench to the display cases led him to the study of art history, philosophy, and church history, which he completed in Munich with a doctorate. He then began his museum career, first at the Bavarian National Museum in Munich, followed by stops in Bonn at the branch of the Deutsche Museum, Malibu at the John P. Getty Museum, San Francisco at the Tech Museum in Silicon Valley, and Washington, D.C. at the Smithsonian Institution. Under the motto, High Tech and History, Curator Peter Fries combines the inventor's vision of the future with the art historian's retrospective. Innovative museum concepts are becoming his trademark. In 2011, he returned to Europe, to Geneva, where the Swiss watchmaking heart beats loudest. Watches, clocks throughout the centuries sometimes are also status symbols. And this is Peter's never-ending passion. With all that said, welcome, Peter. Hi, John. I'm, I'm so thrilled to be here in New York and talking about Patek Philippe, you know, 8,000 miles away. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be with you. Thank you. We are so thrilled to have you here in New York City and uh, have this whole pile of questions to ask you, but we're going to get this in two parts. Okay. And we're going to start with uh, part one. I want to learn more about you, and then we're going to dive deep into the museum. And then part two, we're going to discuss more horological concepts. So first, my, my opening question, you've been working at the Patek Philippe Museum for almost 12 years now. What is the best part about being the curator of the Patek Philippe Museum? You know, working in museums is so much fun because you decide mostly yourself how you would like to establish this place. And it's a big sandbox. So we all remain to be children and play in the sandbox and something works and something doesn't. So you can really find out your way. And uh, the people before did it differently and the people will come later will do it differently. And that's the charming part of the museum. You can give it really your DNA. And I had this fun now for, yeah, you said it, 12 years to do that. Time went by so quickly, it's amazing. When did you first set foot in the museum? 
Well, I've heard about the museum before, of course. I knew when it was founded. I've always been in touch with watchmaking people. And they were always talking about this museum. So I knew pretty much what it's going to be. I've never been before I was asked physically in the museum. But my wife was, and she told me about it and said, wow, that's a cool place. You need to go. So literally, you showed up at the first day of work and walked into the museum for the very first time. Kind of, yes, yes. yes. When they asked me to come and join, of course, I did go there. and Nobody knew me, so I could just be a normal visitor and explore it myself and think about what could be done differently, where I could put my my kind of fingers on uh, where I think a museum needs to talk to the attendants. How can we make this dialogue with visitors and these watches? Uh, it's very sad that these watches are, you know, there's 3,000 watches exhibited. They all sit in their showcases, 10 after 10, so a very smiley face they make to you, but they're not ticking, they're not talking to you, they're not showing you the time. So how, do you can, how can you make these pieces being more telling something about themselves. And that was the fun part all these years. I'm just imagining you walking in on that important day and your heart beating as you're walking through, looking at all the showcases, meeting many of these watches for the first time, which you've seen in books, but maybe for the first time in person. I'm just putting myself in your shoes and wondering like what you can do better to convey the messages from these watches to the world. What was the first thing you wanted to change once you came to the museum? I think visitors, when they come and see pieces, they want to know Mm -hmm. things about these watches. And There's not a lot of opportunities when you have so many pieces on display. You can make many labels, which we did. At least you know when the watch was made, which reference it is, from which year the movement is coming, and when, when the case was made, stuff like that. But you're very limited on the information you can put on a label. So we had to figure out ways to talk to the people. And uh, we created, today it's very simple, you take an iPad, you program something, and then you tell the story about every watch, about every showcase. And that's how you can bring the pieces alive. You can show the watches from the inside out. You show the movement, you show the escapement, you show these wonderful engravings, and you show the case from the backside. Or, you know, all this made these watches more more uh, coming to uh, to talk to the attendants. For any of us obsessed with all things Patek Philippe, we clearly believe that you have the dream job. When you wake up in the morning, when you go to work, is it truly the dream job? There has not been one day in these many years where I was unhappy, ringing the bell, asking security to let me in in the morning. And I come there every day at 7.30. So I go up to the floors, don't take the elevator, just walk up the stairs, look at the nicest pieces of the world, and there's nobody in the room. And I enjoy that for 10, 15 minutes before I go to my desk and start, you know, answering emails or doing something else or writing the first text. So it's never been really a day where where I regretted to go there. What's it? I'm just. Uh, what's it like walking through the museum with complete silence and no one else there? I've only been there when there's people around and there's always the excitement and whispers and commentary, but I, you have the opportunity to be there alone 
Is there almost a, do you commune with the watches? I kind of, you know, over the years, I learned my friends better and better. Mm -hmm. You read about them, you take them apart, which I love to do. I study them really from the inside out. And uh, so now when I see them, I know where they're, balance beats, how, how their heart beats. And uh, I know the sound of these watches. And uh, we, we always oversee that a little bit. You know, we look at a watch, it shows us the time. But when you hold it to your ear, it makes fantastic noise. And I can recognize watches by their noise. Oh, that's fantastic. And, and I think this is important for our listeners to know. You started at a bench as a watchmaker, clockmaker, can you take us through how those early years in your horological journey began? Yeah, my family, they owned some stores in Munich and uh, they decioned when I was 3 this guy will become a watchmaker, so I had no choice and I never questioned I never questioned it. And uh, I was always sitting at the desk of my dad and watching what he's doing and when there was a vacation from school, I went to the store and talked to the watchmaker. So I really enjoyed that. I was always interested in history of timekeeping and of timekeepers, of course. And uh, when there was an old watch coming to the store, I just took it and said, I'll repair it. And they were asking, are you able to do that? Maybe not. I will learn. And so I was always surrounded by historical timekeepers and timepieces. Do you have a preference working with watches or with clocks as a watchmaker or a clockmaker? Yeah, you know, in the history, I was more a clockmaker. I worked on a very big exhibition called Clockwork Universe, which we showed in Europe and then here in Washington, D.C. That was in the 80s, a long time ago. And I knew everything about the Bergie clocks. I've, most of them I had on my desk, and I was able to open them and have a deep look inside S- several of those clocks I restored myself. So uh, I was very privileged when I was young to touch those pieces. Um, For the watches, that was always something a little bit further away. But now with Patek working at Patek Philippe's Museum, it's just a joy to see these enamel painted historical watches 400 years old look like they came out of the store yesterday because this enamel never really changes its colors. Of course, when it breaks, it's bad, but uh, normally it does not. And when you come to the Patek Philippe collection last week, we work on a catalog right now, we had 12 tourbillons disassembled in front of you. That's like, I don't know what you can compare it with. This is nothing you can compare it with. This is the dream of a watchmaker to have these kind of pieces in front of you. When I studied watchmaking, that was in the 70s, there were not a lot of people in the world who could build a tourbillon. And now I was buying a tourbillon from Breguet for the museum, and I have these fantastic Patek Philippe tourbillons in front of me. That's a dream became true. So you have a table, essentially, with a dozen Patek Philippe observatory watches, or tourbillons, in front of you. And you're comparing and contrasting as you're studying these to, to better present them to the world. What is that like? Well, first you open them and you look at the different kind of escapements. Some have an anchor escapement, others have a detent escapement, and then you make them ticking, you're listening to them. They really start to come alive. And then you look at the way how they're done, how is the surface done with, uh, with the Côte de Genève, and, and all these little details. And we put them in databases and make texts out of that, that we really learn 
by looking at the pieces and by playing with the pieces and describing them better. Sometimes we have to go back to the archives and see which year was it made, who were the dial maker, who were the watchmaker, who did the ebosh for this piece. And it, every day we learn so much. And this is something you will keep with you all your life. And that's the fun part of the job. Everything I do, I put in this storage system of a database, but it's also in my brain and I will keep it until I die. And you referenced something earlier that truly resonates with me, and that's the importance of sound in inspecting and experiencing a timepiece. You also said something uh, earlier off camera about the detent and how much you absolutely love this escapement. Could you share those words again? You know, when you hear an anchor escapement, it beats five times a second, big duck, big <laughs> duck. And when you have a detent escapement, it makes tick, tick, tick. It, it's, it makes you so relaxed. It's like doing yoga for your ears. It's hypnotic. It's hypnotic. <laughs> it is, you know. And the fun part in the museum is that we have a, a, a very well-trained team and watchmakers who can take these pieces apart. They can clean them. They can fix them. Photographers who find the right angle for their camera and for their lenses and people who do the archival work. And it's so fantastic to work within, with, with such a team. They're so dedicated to those pieces that I enjoy that every day. Before you take us on a virtual tour of the museum, I'd like to talk about the building itself. The Patek Philippe is housed in a, an early 20th century industrial building um, that was acquired by Patek Philippe in 1975 to, to house the casemaker, owned by Patek Philippe, Atelier Réuni. Uh, once um, the Plain Lawat factory was, was built, everything moved out of, um, of what's now the museum building and went uh, to uh, Plain Lawat. And in 1999 to 2001, the Patek Philippe Museum as we know it today was internally built out and was, was renovated. Even an extra floor was, was added where your, your office is today. Can you tell us some more information about the building itself, its design, even its interior. Let's start a little bit earlier. Patek Philippe had several locations in Geneva where they were producing watches and doing certain kind of jobs. So pieces had to travel between these buildings. And when they built Plan Les Watts, the factory, then everything was housed under one roof. And now with the new building, which a, a few years opened, it provides enough space for housing all these specialists and everything really happens in one building. That's fantastic for production. That's fantastic for team building. It also solves a lot of security issues because you don't have to move pieces around the city. And there were buildings like the museum building, which nobody needed anymore. And so the decision to make this to be the museum was a very wise decision. It's in downtown of Geneva, so it's very easy to access. In Geneva, you can walk from anywhere to anywhere. It's a very small town. It's fun when I walk into the door, they put a new wall on this historical building for the gate, and they have little plaquettes there, maybe five by five centimeters. And there's a little slot, and there's always pointing in a different direction. And I was always wondering what it is. So I, I had the chance to talk to the architect recently because I met him. And I said, what was the idea of that? Oh, this is the symbols of hands of a watch. And it was so easy, but it took really the architect to explain it to me. And now when I come there, I see there's little details which 
make the big picture. I never noticed that. Where is that? Wait, That's at the front you, door? No, it's not on the front door. It's where, where we, the, 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 on the, side. the workers on the side, go okay. in in the morning, where we have our security entrance. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole wall just of these plaquettes and uh, every slot points in a different direction. Love so that. it's an hour hand. Yeah. It's so thoughtful. It's very thoughtful, <laughs> yes. Everything is with intention. Very the much, museum. very much, yes. yeah, very much. And the design you were asking about, the design, it was designed by Mr. Philip Stern's wife, and uh, she designed the showcases, she designed the layout of, uh, of the collection, and it is like when she did it 22 years ago now. Uh, the the cases and the green carpet and the aesthetic with even the curtains. I mean, that that is the Patek Philippe Museum yeah, as we know it. And, and we the, keep it like this, so it had nothing has really changed. Of course, we we had to redo the carpet and we had to build a couple new showcases because sometimes we buy pieces so that we need more space. But it all fits in the traditional design of the exhibition. It's such a distinctive aesthetic that we all associate now with the museum visit. But you shared something with me the other day that I love. We call this wear patterns on the carpet. Picture in your house, if you have carpet, I mean, I picture the house I grew up in, the place where the kids would be running through the door, of course, there'd be more wear. And then there would be like the nice room in the house that the carpet was just perfect. So I have a question for you. Were there wear patterns on the carpet that indicate interest in certain cases? There were, after many years, I think after 15 years of use, this carpet was really worn out and uh, it had to be replaced. The question was just how do we do this uh, in order not to close the museum? Um, so I've, I've prepared that for several years and uh, also Philip Stern once asked, what are the showcases people are really mostly interested in? Can we measure that somehow? And I said, that's very easy. You just look at the wear pattern in front of the showcase. So there were showcases where there was no carpet anymore. It went through almost a hole there. These are the perpetual calendars with chronographs in combination. That's where people put their notes on the showcase. You have to clean it five <laughs> times a day, <laughs> but you could see it also on the floor. So I made a little documentation on the war pattern mm -hmm. and we knew exactly which, which are the showcases mostly visited. So the complicated watches was at the top yeah, of the list. That's on the top of the list. Oh, that is so much fun. Yeah. Tourbillons, you know, chronometers, uh, even chronographs, the early chronographs, there were, mm -hmm. you, know, you, you could really see the carpet is, is used heavily. How about the ellipse case? Was anyone going there? Well, I would say it was not really visible on the floor, but I, when I'm there, people go there. You're, that was very diplomatic. Yeah, you yeah. know, in the future, the ellipse case is going to be really worn down. So. <laughs> yeah, you know, when I tell the people that this is uh, blue gold, mm -hmm. then they're very surprised. You know, it's a, it's a patent by Patek Philippe. They mix cobalt with gold and it's blue. It turns blue. It's blue gold. People it's, don't know that. People do not know that. So uh, I, I spend a lot of time in the collection. I talk to visitors. Mm -hmm. I, this is what I mostly enjoy because this gives me the ideas of what we can change when we write our texts, what's known, what's not known. And people have never heard about blue gold. Well, I'd like to call this segment the Patek Philippe experience, where I challenge you to take us on a virtual tour from here in New York. But we're imagining we're in the Patek Philippe Museum we walk through the opening gate, we go up those little stairs, we say hello to the, the receptionist, and then we find you, Dr. Fries, welcoming us. What's the first thing we do when we walk through the museum? When you're at this 
let's say, entrance level, there are two watchmakers sitting in their studios and with big glass walls, and you can see them repairing only the museum watches. That is always the question. Mm -hmm. Are these watchmakers working for the company of repairing clients' watches? No. They're only there to repair the watches of the museum. And I tell you, three watchmakers cannot fix all the watches in their lifetime. That explains you how big this place is. And then either we walk upstairs to the third level or we take the elevator and we explore the museum from the top. And what's the first message you want to share with visitors when they walk through the museum? So I cannot assume that every visitor who comes wears a Patek Philippe watch. And uh, of course I try to get them kind of involved in the discussion. And uh, so my first statement is, which is the key message I want everybody to take home. It doesn't matter which brand of mechanical watch you have on your wrist. Every mechanical watch has at least 10 parts of Patek Philippe inside. And that's the crown winding setting mechanism, which was invented by Jean-Adrien Philippe in Paris in 1842. And it revolutionized the watch industry, not only in Switzerland, worldwide, but starting in Switzerland, starting at Patek Philippe. So Mr. Patek, he heard about this. He was always interested in that subject. How can we get rid of the key? There were different attempts to do that. But he went to Paris. They had a conversation. And the rest is history. They renamed the company after the world first exhibition in London, in the World Fairs. And uh, so it was called from then Patek Philippe, a company. And uh, they have converted the whole line of watches from the key mechanism to the crown winding setting mechanism. So that means when you turn the crown, you wind the watch. When you pull the crown, you move the hands. And that was the big thing. It was not easy because the whole mechanism had to be changed. And it took Mr. Philippe about 30 years. He described it very well in a book in 1863, what the process was. And... Uh, he laid out how that would change the world. And by 1817, it was almost impossible for any producer to sell a watch with a key. So they really changed the world. And that's what makes Patek Philippe so important in the history of watchmaking. They are innovative and they have never stopped to invent. And they came up with the greatest watches we see today in auction houses or in our boutiques worldwide. And that's such a wonderful introduction to the museum. And I, I'm imagining people who may not have a Patek Philippe to look at their wrist when they're hearing this from you and smiling and feeling a little bit proud that they're part of this heritage. Well, I think it's a good start if you don't have a Patek Philippe, but you have 10 parts of it. Yeah, exactly. So you get it for free. You know? <laughs> I love it. So you're on the third floor. And uh, what's on the third floor of the museum? On the third floor, we're talking about a little bit about the history of the company. We have a fantastic library. And we have a collection on portrait enamels of the first generation of enamel making. Enamel making, or enamel painting as it's called, is a technique which was important in Switzerland. It was invented in France. But then, for religious reasons, the inventors, the craftsmen, all moved to Switzerland, to Geneva. And Geneva became the hub of enamel painting over now 400 years. 
And we don't want to go too deep into that, but when in the 1960s, the class at the Academy for Enamel Painting had to be closed because there was not enough demand, there were not enough interested students anymore, it was Henri Stern and Philip Stern who hired the best of these pupils. And Susan Rohr, she's still alive in, uh, in Geneva. She was one of the most prestigious and best enamel painters. And if you go to auction houses today, you know how they're valued. They are fantastic and they're beautiful. And they bring the paintings which are normally in museums in your pocket on a watch. And uh, that's how enamel painting is so important for Patek Philippe on pocket watches, but also on uh, the dome clocks. So that's a very important uh, subject for Patek Philippe. And we show it all. We show it on the historical timepieces, we show it on these portrait enamels, and we show it later on, on Patek Philippe watches. This is Peter Fries from the Patek Philippe Museum in Geneva. We are listening here to my interview with John Riedon from Collectability. You bring up an important point that some people are surprised that, yes, the Patek Philippe Museum obviously has the most extraordinary collection of Patek Philippe watches, but the antique collection is equally, and some would say even, I wouldn't say, it's equally as exciting to see the, one of the most impressive collections pre-1839 of, it's not only enamels, and, and we're going to go down the floors and take a look at that later. It's it's just all things horological. And I think the third floor really encapsulates that. It tells the Patek Philippe story, um, but it also talks, in, in this case, you're talking about the, the enamel exhibition. It, it educates about the whole horological tradition from Geneva and around the world. Yeah, and, you know, in the library, we have a, a couple of... Uh, uh, Discussion pieces, you can call it, uh, like like a fantastic clock from Bergi, Joost Bergi, a Swiss clockmaker who worked for Kepler in, in Prague. And uh, the clock we have acquired recently is probably out of the hands of... Uh, it's made by Joost Bergi, but it's been with Kepler. And, uh, Kepler. and that's the one on the far right-hand side. On the side. far right yes. side, and Kepler said, Bergi is the Dura of watchmaking. So... What what do you want more? So that's an important piece. It was the only piece which was still in private hands, and the museum acquired it now. And uh, so that's all on the third floor. But then you walk down to the second floor, the antique collection, and that's the history of watchmaking, the history of portable timekeeping. It and starts. What's the earliest watch? Ah, uh, the earliest watch. We have two very early watches. Uh, they are neck watches, so you hang them around your neck and you. You show basically you have a watch, it's very prestigious, and they are from the 1520s. They belong to a group of the eight oldest watches in the world, and we have two of those. They are very nicely presented. And uh, some of these early watches, they do have a movement made by uh, iron smiths because the craftsmen of watchmaking did not exist at those days. That comes in 1550. So we are really before watchmakers did exist. And so they're completely made out of iron. And some of them do have sundials inside. Hmm. And with the sundials, you can set the hour hand of the watch. 
These watches only needed our hands because they were not very precise at those days. So a minute hand would have just be irritating everyone. So some of the earliest watches, another wonderful visual, they were worn around the neck. They were a sign of wealth. Like, are we talking like the Nuremberg eggs, like that kind of style, or what do they look like? Oh, they look like drum boxes, Okay. and uh, they have no glass. They have mm-hmm. a lid with very small holes through which you can see the, the hand moving around the dial. So they're protected, but without the glass. And uh, they, do, they do some ticking, but they're not very reliable in yeah, how keeping them. I all would right. say about you have to wind them about two times a day, and uh, they are um, yeah like that. They are like the early iPhones. You had to charge them five, five times a day. <laughs> so they were signs of wealth, power. There were signs technology, of technology. And there are paintings showing people wearing them prominently mm-hmm. and displaying them to their friends and say, you know, I have a watch. Some things never change. It will never change. (laughs) So we're in the antique collection on the second floor. What are three pieces that we must see? You know, there's one clock by Breguet. It's called a Sympathique. It's about two feet tall. And uh, when the owner of the clock comes home at night, he takes his pocket watch out of the pocket and puts it in a little cradle. And at three o'clock in the morning, a little pin drives from the clock into the watch and starts to wind it. And a few minutes later, a second pin goes into the watch and adjusts the hands of the pocket watch according to the hands of the clock. So they synchronize. And parallel, it measures how much difference was there between the clock and the watch. And then a third pin goes in the watch and regulates it. That's so amazing. In the morning, you take the watch. You don't have to do anything. It's fully wound. It's fully set. And you just use it. One of the earliest examples of a non-key watch. Now, I understand you, the museum, has two examples of sympathiques, yes. which one is your favorite? Well, we have probably the most beautiful one, which was started by Breguet himself, and the movement of the watch is out of the hands of Breguet, but the clock itself was done a little bit later, so it was finished in the 1830s. And, and is this the tortoiseshell one? That's the tortoiseshell one. It's big, it's beautiful, and it's one of the most prominent pieces the museum has. It ranks in the top five pieces. And I recall, because I helped sell that back in 1999, the first time museum sale, that that was made originally for the Duke d'Orléans. That's exactly. Really, really cool. And there's (laughs) not a lot in the world, you know. I think there's 18 of these clocks in the world. Incredible, incredible. You know, it's also fun that we have have a very significant collection on Breguet pieces. Mm -hmm. We have two very early tourbillons. We have uh, a Perpetuel, which is considered to be the second most important watch Breguet ever built. So we are happy to have, I don't know exactly how many because it's quite a lot, but uh, we have very prominent pieces out of the hands of Mr. Breguet, which I consider to be one of the most important watchmakers ever. You must have one of the most important assemblages of original Breguet watches in the world. Would you say the most important? 
Or am I pushing? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go that far. I think one of the most important. I would say uh, this is not our core. Yes, we're we're Patek Philippe, and we we, will concentrate on the history of Patek Philippe. But I think a museum which has that approach to show the history of portable timekeeping needs to have a focus also on Breguet because he made so many inventions, he tried out so many things. So that's a must, and we are lucky to have them. We have to talk a little bit, just a little bit about English horology. Is there an English horological masterpiece that you'd like to mention from the floor? Well, not, not just one. I know. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a perpetual calendar, the earliest perpetual calendar, 1863 by, by Thomas Mutch. Uh, for us, very important because uh, Patrick Philippe created the first uh, wristwatch with a perpetual calendar. So there is a direct line. The interesting thing on this pocket watch, it does have a leap year indicator. The early wristwatches did not have that. Even the early pocket watches with perpetual calendars did not indicate the leap year. So. The engineers of the company, the watchmakers of the company, come and study that piece because it has, even for the annual calendar, a very interesting mechanism. That leads to the point that this collection is for visitors to show them the history of timekeeping, but it's all the resource of our engineers, our inventors, our watchmakers to learn from history and build watches for the future. So at this point in the tour, Many people are overwhelmed as they're just entranced by this antique collection, which, frankly, Patek Philippe might have brought them through the door. That's what they came to the museum for. But they're propelled into the past before they're Patek Philippe, learning about these these early watches. And uh, I've heard from many visitors, they'll get stuck, lost in this world on the second floor, and then they'll, they'll have to come back another day to absorb the Patek Philippe floor, because that, for the Patek Philippe universe, is very overwhelming. So we go down the stairs to the first floor, and you're just surrounded by a Patek Philippe Disneyland, for lack of a better word. What's the first watch that you'd want to show people when they're in this um, amazing place? Yeah, you, you said it very nicely and interesting. Many people never make it to the first floor. They get really stuck on yes. the second floor yeah. uh, with the historical timepieces. People who have never been there, there's uh, 150 showcases with 1,200 timepieces that can absorb you. It can take all your time if you're not careful. People are surprised. They do not expect that. When they go to the Patek Philippe Museum, they think it's a company museum. I will only show pieces of the company. No, it starts with this historical approach giving the background to what Patek Philippe stands for, history, respect from history, learning from history. And uh, yeah, when you go to the first floor, it's overwhelming again. So you have to push a reset button. <laughs> you have to push a reset button. You, you, you come in a completely different environment. In the antique collection, there's only one watch, which is made by Patek Philippe, which at the end, which guides you to Patek Philippe. And it's one of the very first ones with the crown winding setting mechanism. So that's the key story. We, we, we say now it's over with the key. All the watches in the antique collection are wound by keys. Now we're coming to a new era, 
1839, founded in Geneva by two gentlemen which were in, in the Russian wars and uh, coming from Poland and uh, Czechoslovakia, and they kind of tried out something, building watches in Geneva for their friends, of course. Uh, all these early pieces have images of Polish history, and uh, th these were the immigrants who came to Geneva. And this Geneva. is Patek and Czepek. That's Patek and Czepek? Yes. Can you tell us a little about Czepek? Not many people know about him. Both of them, they were founding this company. Mm -hmm. When Patek himself, Monsieur Patek, when he came to Geneva, he started to learn painting with Kalam. Alexandra Kalam. Alexandra yes. Kalam. It's my sister's favorite artist, by the way. He's <laughs> one of the great artists in, in Switzerland. Yes. And uh, his paintings are huge. Mm -hmm. And they show these dramatic waterfalls and forests. and Beautiful landscapes. It's, it's the Swiss landscape, yeah. you know, in a very dramatic way. So Monsieur Patek was very interested in that. And uh, he had an artistic kind of a sense. It's not from nowhere that... Later, Monsieur Patek and Monsieur Philippe always said, we want to build the most beautiful watches. And on top of that, they want to build the most precisest watches. But again, it started with these two men who worked together for a few years. We, we do not know why they separated. That's not uh, identifiable at this point of time. But it worked out for the first couple of years. They were successful. Monsieur Chapek created beautiful watches. He then went to Paris when they separated and he worked for the, the emperor in, in France. We have a few of those pieces and then we lose track of him. We think he went back home. He wanted to build a watchmaking school there, but we've never heard of him again. So the history of Patek Philippe really starts with the invention of this uh, watches with a crown. And uh, they early used industrial exhibitions as their platform. The World Fairs, the first one in 1851 in London, opened by the Queen. And uh, Monsieur Philippe stepped up to the Queen and said, here's a watch with a crown. And that was a big success. She also wanted a traditional one with, with a key, so she had two. And she bought one for her husband, so she went home with three watches of Patek Philippe. Uh, two of those are now displayed at the museum. Where's the third one? We know where it is, and I'll send flowers every year. So <laughs> <laughs> I hope one day it will end up in the museum. I'm pretty sure it will. So Prince Albert's watch it was is Prince Albert's watch. unknown at this point yeah, where it is. Yeah. No, it's known. Oh, I know it. You know where it is. I know Does it. Does anyone else? I hope not. I'm on the job. <laughs> <laughs> no, it would be amazing if that yeah. piece no, was in the museum. No, it would be nice to, 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 bring them to back. bring them back. Yes, yes. Oh, wow. I'll give that as, as option. Not the first thing to see is Queen Victoria's pieces. I mean, these, those are crowd favorites. What's the next piece that you'd have to show on that floor to a visitor? And I know there's hundreds. The story is really about the beauty of the watches, mm -hmm. and it's about the preciseness. You just have to imagine, how do you measure in a competitive environment and watches in the 19th century were as important as today mobile phones. There's huge competition, there's a huge market, there's huge investments, and there is lots of innovation. How do you measure that you built the best watches in the world? That was, is one part of the story. The other part is that observatories for observing stars, they needed better 
watches. They complained about the bad quality the market delivers. So they created a competition that started in the 1860s, and every watch producer was delivering watches anonymously to these observatories. And there were not a lot of observatories doing that. A very famous one was the observatory in Geneva. And they tested these watches. And they've done this kind of until the quartz watch came into the game. So for almost a hundred years. And within these hundred years, Patek Philippe made more than 50% of the first prizes, gold medals, and whatever these awards were called. And the rest had to be shared with all the other brands. I think that's a big message. It's impressive. And we see on some certificates of origin, the words above competition are seen. Yes. Can you share with us, what does it mean to be above competition in terms of the observatory trials? Well, it's all about preciseness because mm-hmm. that's what it was all about. So they had to be adjusted against cold, against heat. They had a special category on isochronism, so of the amplitude of the balance. They had to be measured in different positions, dial up, dial down, vertical, dial crown left or right. And they were heavily measured over weeks until the report was written. And it's interesting that we know from our archives that the price for regulating these watches by the so-called master regleurs, these are the superstars in watchmaking, is about 50% of the sales price. Wow. That's like tuning a Formula One car. Yes. They don't add any pieces. They just turn some screws to make it faster and better. And that's the same with these watches. They turn a few screws to make the balance working better and working in all positions precisely, being resistant against change of temperature. And some of these watches have been tested by several generations of master regleurs and being made better and better. Some of these watches have never left the company. They have been there forever. These are prototypes. They have never been in private hands. That's another nice thing of this museum. There are pieces never been in the market. And we have one of these watches, which I always call the most precise watch in the world. It's been in this exercise several times with different master regleurs between 1930 and 1960. It never had a case, so in 1960 it got a case, and now it's in the showcase, Mm -hmm. and I call it the most precise watch in the world. If you look at it, you wouldn't believe it. It's very modest. You just um, said something that just blows my mind, because I've never connected the observatory trials to what we see on most Patek Philippe watches on the movements. You'll see engraved starting in the 1930s, maybe even a bit earlier, all the way for decades, the movements will say, adjusted to heat, cold, isochronism, and five positions. This was a a humble brag that I think directly correlates back to the observatory trials, which those were the requirements for the trials. Exactly. That's where it comes from. It says with adjustments. Yes. Eight adjustments. It's all about the observatory trials. I love it. It just ties it all, all together. You have one more watch you could show us on the Patek Philippe floor. I know this is the ultimate challenge. What is the piece that we, because uh, we have to run out the door, what's the piece we need to see first? Ma, you know, it's always difficult to answer that question because all the other ones will be so unhappy. I know. And they will be stopped ticking. Um, 
I'm definitely in love with pocket watches. I think this is also in the auction world. They will have a great renaissance and they will have a great future. So I love to take my tourbillons apart. But when I find a wristwatch with a tourbillon, we have uh, very early calibers with tourbillons inside. Not many of these were built. We have two of them in the museum. They are fantastic. Or where I think Paddock comes closest as a company to their goal to build the best watches in the world when you look at the secular watches, secular calendars. Such as the secular perpetual calendar made for Seth Atwood. And we have two of them in the museum. Wow. And for people who are not so aware of what that meant, but the leap year was invented by Julius Caesar, so 2,000 years ago because he figured out that the calendar and the constellation of the stars is not synchronized anymore. With that leap year, with this additional day every four year, he kept it kind of synchrone, but in the 1560s, so 1,600 years later, it was again out of sync and completely out of sync. So uh, what they did in 1563, they cut 10 days of October. So. October 16th followed October 4th. In one night, synchronicity was there. But then what you do for the future is that it doesn't happen again. So the 400-year rule, which they established, the Pope says that every century you can not divide equally by 400 will not be a leap year, even if you can divide it by four, which is the rule we all know. So the year 2000, you can equally divide by 400, so it was not a leap year. 2100 will not be a leap year. 2200 will not be a leap year. This watch can do it. And when I, in front of visitors, I say, it's built for the next generations, because all of us here in the room, we will not be able to see that. So there's one gear that rotates every 100 years. It's not just one gear, it's a it's little a, bit more complicated, more but it's, wow. it's a very special complication. Or take the Calibre 89, which calculates mm -hmm. the Easter date. We have the prototype in the museum. There's no other watch in the world who can do that. And these watches are computers. These watches literally. are analog computers, that's yes. what they are. You know, the Calibre 89 with 33 complications, 1,800 parts, I think. It's amazing. Now, it's important to note that there is a moving target that anything that goes in the museum has to be over 20 years old. Is that true? Yes. It yes, it's true. The Stern family wanted the museum not to be a point of sales. They really wanted to build a museum. They wanted to be part of the museum family in Geneva. And they don't want to give visitors the impression what you see in the showcase you can buy. These are historical pieces. Of course, many of these pieces you find in the auction world today and they are on the market. If you have enough money, you can buy such pieces as well. But the rule is that the last 20 years of production are not exhibited at the museum, but there's a big safe and the pieces of the last 20 years are always waiting there to be added to the museum collection. And uh, now it's December, so in a few weeks I will go to plan le and go to the big safe and take another year of beautiful watches. And that must be fun. Very fun pieces, and they, they are brand new. They've never been opened. They're still in their boxes. I have a vault with hundreds of pieces. They've never, they're in their boxes, never been opened. 
and we will take them out and we'll put them in the museum collection. Every year is the same procedure. It's a lot of fun. What is the most modern, in terms of production date, watch that you have in the museum today? It is a Grandmaster's Chime, and that's an exception from the rule because it's from 2014, so normally it would not be displayed, but we think this watch is so important, chiming the date and uh, having all kind of features of uh, double face style and uh, hundreds of parts inside. It's one of the most beautiful watches we have. So we said we break the rule just for this one and uh, it's already on display. That's fantastic. Now, as this is the, my final set of questions for part one. I'd like to talk about the Stern family a bit. And it's no secret without Henry Stern, without Philippe Stern, and without Thierry Stern, there would not be a Patek Philippe Museum. You, over the years, worked very closely with Philippe Stern. I'd love to hear some stories of what was it like to work with him to build what is basically his personal collection. What was it like to work and continue to work with the Stern family? I think I'm a very lucky guy being in a transition time from Philip Stern to Thierry Stern, and now even the next generation is already waiting in front of the door to come in and work. I see that transition. I had for many years meetings with Mr. Philip Stern, with Mr. Thierry Stern, and I could see how they interact and how we could transform that into the museum in certain ways. They are different, and though we need to build this museum, you know, for everybody and for both of them. So that was a very interesting time. Now Mr. Philip Stern is a little bit more, he's still responsible for the museum and he approves every acquisition and he makes uh, proposals. So uh, the work has not stopped working with him, but he's not anymore in the company. So that makes also a difference. And uh, now it's Mr. Thierry Stern who, who runs the place and, you know, it's uh, amazing how successful this companies, I think we're all very proud to, to work there uh, and uh, to work with them. Having them in direct contact was uh, was a privilege, and I, I, I know about that. And uh, making acquisitions for the museum, and um, in these 12 years, we made a lot of acquisitions quality-wise. Now our rule is if we buy a piece, it should be in the top three. Top three in terms of importance? Of importance, of quality. So if another piece will be added to the collection, it has to be really make a difference because we have so many pieces. That leads that we don't acquire so many anymore. But when we buy, we buy really the, the, the high quality. And uh, with Philip Stern, Mr. Philip Stern, it was uh, a joy because uh, I went to auctions. He was with me in my ear on my phone. And... Um, so we were there. The museum is, is very much alive, growing, vibrant. It is the center of the horological community, not only for Patek Philippe. But my final question is, what is the future of the Patek Philippe Museum? And for Peter's answer, you're going to have to wait until part two. This is part one of two of our conversation with Peter Fries. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you could join us for the next episode to hear the answer to that very important question and more in our conversation with Peter Fries. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe so that you do not miss any future episodes. This is John Reardon for Collectability. Collectability.